This is Guns and Butter. One thing I did discover repeatedly in this whole Franklin thing, whatever, whether it's here or Washington, D.C., or out there in Oregon, their influence and power of this network was awesome. They had power at the highest levels and still do today, I am sure. And uh, that was maybe for me the most difficult thing to comprehend and really understand and believe but uh it's awesome awesome power one time after another i saw it over and over and over i'm bonnie faulkner today on guns and butter john DeCamp. today's show the franklin scandal john DeCamp was a republican nebraska state senator for 16 years and head of the nebraska legislature's banking finance and insurance committee He is an attorney and businessman and author of The Franklin Cover-Up, Child Abuse, Satanism, and Murder in Nebraska. DeCamp was a captain in the infantry in the Vietnam War. Today we discuss his investigative work on scandals surrounding the bankruptcy and seizure of the Franklin Credit Union in Omaha, Nebraska, how he got involved, and what led him to write The Franklin Cover-Up. John DeCamp, welcome. Appreciate your saying that. I've just finished reading your book, The Franklin Cover-Up, and I must say it is a very important book, but one of the most horrifying books I've ever read. You were a Nebraska Republican state senator for 16 years, from 1971 to 1987, and head of the Nebraska legislature's Banking, Finance, and Insurance Committee. On November 4, 1988, the Omaha-based Franklin Federal Community Credit Union was shut down by the FBI, the IRS, and the National Credit Union Administration due to what you describe as swindles on a vast scale. Since you were no longer a member of the state legislature at that point, how did you get involved in the Franklin Credit Union scandal? Well, I had a couple senators who had been there come and ask me for advice. I suggested they set up a committee special or, you know, an investigation committee so they could look into that because uh, it was a pretty big financial thing and there were some strange stories going around about the cause and I thought that was appropriate and they, they did indeed do that. And then I noticed, as everybody did, strange, strange, stranger stories started floating around on the streets of Omaha and across Nebraska and even in some of the radio broadcasts. Uh, kids, young kids would tell about, oh, they knew Larry King, the head of that credit union. They went to Washington, D.C. on a private jet with him, and they uh, did this with him, and uh, they went to private parties with him, and they had all kinds of other, and I heard these stories, same as other people did on the street, and when I was asked about them, I, I said, well, I think they got to be as fantasy-based as anything I've ever heard. I stupidly then said something else, because stories had to do with some pretty horrible claims that were floating around on the streets that some of these kids were telling about uh, their involvement in sexual and drug trafficking and so on, uh, involving with Larry King and quite a few other prominent, well-known names. 
both in the United States and, of course, in the state of Nebraska at the time. And then, and then uh, I foolishly said something when I was asked about it. I said, you know, if I really believed any of this stuff, I'd be the first one to step forward and say something needs to be done and try to do something about it. Well, about a few days later, I get this letter from a kid, and he says, I'm in jail, and I read your stuff in the paper. They were saying that you said you didn't believe any of this, and if you'd come see me, I could prove to you it's not made up. And his letter went on and said he, he got arrested on the night night they raided the Franklin Credit Union or something. I don't remember just all the now, but... I thought, well, I guess the kids called my bluff. I better go there and just check it out anyway. So I go to check this kid out. His name was Paul Bonassi. And as I'm going into the jail where he's locked up, and they had told me he was arrested for supposedly touching his uh, cousin or something on the outside of his pants in a sexual way, which kind of surprised me that they'd arrest a teenage kid and whatever for supposedly in his house. But anyway, so I went to see him, and as I was going in, I see this very, very well-known psychiatrist who's head of uh, one of the university psychiatric divisions for the university. And uh, he saw me, and he greeted me because he knew who I was, because uh, I'd been a senator pretty pretty prominent, believe it or not, <laughs> very controversial. And he says something, blah, 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 and who are you here to see? And I said, oh, some kid involved in this whole crazy uh, credit union scandal and the kids claiming psychiatrist said to me, he says, well, he says, that's who I just left. I said to him, well, is the kid a total insane liar? And he looked at me and as seriously and strongly as I've ever seen anybody react, he says, not only is the kid probably telling the total truth, but he's incapable of doing otherwise because he is the most perfect, true, multiple personality I've ever diagnosed or been privileged to observe. And I looked at him as if he was nuts, and I said, are you serious? And he says, dead serious, and he walked away. So I went in there with kind of a completely different attitude of confusion, and I better check this out. And I go in, and the boy tells me one strange story after another, which involved prominent personalities and completely improper conduct of the worst sort. And uh, he says, I know you don't believe me, but he says, I have something that will prove I'm not just making this up. And I said, oh, what's that? And he says, all the time since I've been a little boy, he said, my grandpa taught me and instructed me and made me keep a diary. And so I have these diaries going back you know, to when I was just a young kid, barely able to read or write or anything. And he says, they're buried. And he told me where outside of a house in a kind of a, it was a vacant house when I went to look, and uh, in a window well buried in there. And he says, they're in there and you can check them. And I wrote a lot of things in there. So I thought, well, what the heck, based on what the psychiatrist told me that the kid isn't crazy, he's a multiple personality, and therefore personality switch if he has to change something or whatever, he just switches a personality. Anyway, so I go and I dig these things up. Sure enough, they were there. So 
So the first thing I did was turn those diaries over to these, what do you call them, forensic or special uh, companies that can examine and determine the age of the ink and the age of the writing or whatever. And they come back saying, yeah, these were written over a series of years, and uh, several of them come in exactly with the year that that ink or that particular thing first came out, whether it was a particular type of binding or in a couple cases it was ink. Certain ink was in this year and certain ink was another year and so on. But anyway, so there was no question they were written going over a period of several years by this kid and giving a history of all these various people he'd go with and these parties he'd go to and be on this private jet with this Larry King character on Larry King's private jet. And remember, Larry King is the the head of this uh, credit union that went belly up. And it went, you know, for a little state like this, a single credit union going belly up and coming up with $40 million missing, uh, that's a good chunk of change. And so it was uh, more than a little interesting. And so I shared what information I had with uh, the Senate Investigating Committee then that was working on this whole thing of the credit union and told them they better look into this because I was now convinced that it was true. And so they did start doing that, and I started representing that boy. And that was the beginning of a walk-in and through hell, which, as I say today when I'm asked, I wish I didn't know anything about it. And... uh, I understand why somebody, when they hear the story, will say, ah, this has to be baloney, I can't believe that, you know. Well, I wish I didn't either still. But it's true, and it's pretty horrible, and that's what the book's about. And believe it or not, I never spent a dime, not even a penny, promoting advertising or anything else with the book. I wrote the book strictly because kind of my godfather type person and and best friend and whatever, came out to Nebraska at my suggestion and got involved in the investigation. He was the one that told me for my own safety and protection, I should write the book and tell everything I knew, whether anybody ever believed a word of it wasn't important, it was that I put it out there so uh, there'd be no percentage in doing me in to keep it secret, what I was saying, because I'd already said it, and the only question was whether whether I could prove it or whether anybody else would take up and follow up. And that person that gave me that advice was somebody who you might know, some of you. It was a guy named Bill Colby, William E. Colby. When I got shipped to Vietnam, I was a young captain sent over there in the height of the Vietnam War. And uh, he was the person I was directly and immediately assigned to. And we can go into some of that later if you want. But in the program called the Phoenix Program, which... A few folk, I'm sure, if you've got many people listening, will know what I'm talking about. It's later been called an assassination program, and I suppose you could argue it was. It was Bill Colby's idea. Bill Colby was head of the Central Intelligence Agency, as you know, but at that time he was deputy ambassador officially, but I think officially there he was head of the CIA too. But anyway, Bill uh, was the one that told me for your own safety, tell everything you know, whether anybody ever believes a word is not important. What is important is there's no percentage in killing you or doing you in. It'll only give you more believability and credibility. So I wrote the book, but that first edition I think you've got, it sold about a couple hundred thousand copies, and uh, 
then I wrote a follow-up edition in the 2004 or 5 or 6 or something like that, and that's the one you should get a copy of because I'll send you one. I do, in a few minutes, want to talk to you a bit about William Colby because it's very interesting that he recommended that you write this book. Um, Let me give you one more bit of information in case I forget later on. In fact, he went further than that when what was one of the major television networks, a team came here from Great Britain, and it was an investigative team to do a documentary, and they spent, gosh, six months here investigating, doing whatever, and then they did the program of their documentary. It lasted an hour long, and it was shown one time on uh, Discovery Channel, was shown one time on there, and then all kinds of pressure from the Congress of the United States, as we later learned, got it pulled from the air. So it was only seen on the East Coast just for the first one showing. And now I guess it's all over the Internet. You can get copies of it. Uh, I got some copies, and I made copies and gave them to a lot of people because I thought they should have it. But it was a heck of a great documentary. That Have you ever seen that? I watched it on the Internet. It's a rough cut. A little bit of the video is missing, but it's basically there. Yes, it's a very good documentary. Yeah, and uh, they wouldn't do the program and go on the air for the final thing unless Colby personally would sit in the thing and verify that he believed this and it needs investigating, you know, and identify himself as the former head of the CIA. And this was not too terribly long after he'd been out of the CIA and set up his own private investigating thing. And he did indeed go and was recorded. Was he in the documentary you saw? Yes, in two different places. Okay, so anyway, he he did that because they required that as kind of, instead of my word about something, here's kind of the king of the hill, you know what I mean? So, kind of interesting. I'm speaking with attorney and author John DeCamp. Today's show, The Franklin Scandal. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. To follow up on the Franklin Credit Union, wasn't it supposed to serve the African-American community there in Omaha? Well, that's what everybody thought, but most of its funds weren't from, most of its deposits weren't from particularly African-American at all. They were from some of the more prominent institutions and places like Boys Town and institutions of that category. And so uh, when they finally checked into it, there was $40 million missing. And there was only one man there in a position to take it. And that was a man named Larry King. And Larry King, no, not the Larry King on television the last many years, but a black man named Larry King. And Larry King had his own claim to fame he was on, uh, oh, I don't know whether it was Time Magazine or one of those magazines is listed as the fastest rising black star in the Republican Party. He was at both the 84 and 88 Republican National Convention. I know that personally because I was there, too. I was elected as a delegate to the Republican Convention to vote for, you know, whoever it was at the time. Anyway, so Larry King was also there. In fact, Larry King sang the opening anthem at uh, the conventions. 
So he'd been around, and he was well-known himself. That's why he had a lot of attention at his little credit union with major deposits from some pretty prominent institutions and folk. As for serving the black community, uh, I don't know how well it did or didn't do that. What I do know is when you take $40 million out of it and steal it for yourself and use it for completely horrible, sinful purposes, it doesn't go particularly to the black community to benefit them anyway. Now, in, in addition to Boys Town investing money in the Franklin Credit Union, as you say, there were many prominent companies, corporations that invested there as well. Wasn't ConAgra one of them? And, oh, yes, 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 yes. And uh, the Union Pacific Railroad? They had big headquarters here, as you know, and ConAgra, of course. Who was Rusty Nelson? Rusty Nelson was a young man who, by the way, is out of prison. I helped get him out and everything. He was a young man who was a photographer and became a workhorse, if you want, or a private photographer for Larry King and a bunch of the other individuals who were involved in this type of conduct with children who photographed for them and uh, did this uh, pretty extensively. And ultimately, when when this all broke, he kind of disappeared, and he was uh, ultimately arrested out somewhere in uh, Oregon, maybe, or somewhere. And uh, they found all kinds of stuff in his pictures and stuff in his van he was driving. And But anyway, I went out there also to Oregon then, and actually worked and tried to get control and access to the pictures to give you, if I might say it, just one little additional piece of proof of how powerful, how absolutely nationwide and powerful this ring of evil people were. They were able to somehow, even though I went out and represented this chap, all I did was get access to start looking at the pictures, saw indeed they were just as horrific and frightening and terrible as I had been told. And uh, then I tried to get them protected, and miraculously they ordered them all destroyed and made sure they got destroyed. The one thing I did discover repeatedly in this whole Franklin thing and whatever whether it's here or Washington, D.C., or out there in Oregon, their influence and power of this network was awesome. They had power at the highest levels and still do today, I am sure. And uh, that was maybe for me the most difficult thing to comprehend and really understand and believe. But uh, it's awesome, awesome power. And it was just one time after another I saw it over and over and over. And that's what Colby was kind of warning me about when he came here and got involved in the investigation. He got involved, was hired by the committee, actually, as I recall now, to start looking into the plane crash that killed the primary investigator, Gary Caradori, who was coming up with this stuff for the Senate committee. Gary Caradori one of the most noble young men you could imagine. He 
had been a state patrol officer and a state law enforcement for years, and the committee hired him because he had done some pretty prominent work. The Senate committee hired him as their personal investigator to look into various things, and he started questioning these kids one after another and following leads and not just being scared off, and uh, he went to get a bunch of material when he got this call to go to Chicago, I believe it was, and uh, does some stuff there and picks up some things. He takes off in his private airplane, doesn't get very far and implodes or explodes or anyway, it crashes and kills him and his young boy who was with him. I think I remember what Colby said after he looked into it and told him, he says, you'll never really be able to prove what really was done. And uh, he was flying back with that material and Remarkably enough, all those materials in his airplane disappeared, even though it was spread over a quarter or half a mile area. Officially, he was going to a baseball game there, but in fact, he was going to pick up materials. This was his cover. Well, so much for his uh, thinking he fooled the big boys. So I guess the message I'm just trying to get across here is the power the awesome power of the individuals involved in this is on the level of just like almost a secret government. And uh, believe me, it's used when needed, and it's used to shut people up and compromise others and just make other people turn their heads the other way and so on. And uh, Well, you referred to this as a network. Do you have any idea what this network is? It's a network of individuals who, for one reason or another, have gotten their sexual or other needs fulfilled in such a way that they got compromised uh, by utilization of young boys and young girls for their sexual satisfaction or whatever. And uh, just a simple fact of life, and as I say, if you'd told me this once upon a time, I'd have told you, yeah, right, you're crazy. But yes, indeed, you get the idea. Now, uh, what about the Franklin Committee of the Nebraska Legislature? Now, this was a committee that was set up to investigate what? They were to investigate two things primarily. One, of course, is the failure of the credit union, what happened to the money, and who was accountable, so to speak. And the other thing was all these strange stories from these children and others coming out about, well, yeah, I, 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 I know of that. I, uh, I was at the parties with him and blah, blah, blah. And uh, look into the whole picture. And I think primarily some people were investigating merely to shut these things up because they didn't want this quote, stupid, ridiculous claim and stain being put upon the state or upon individuals. And there were some pretty prominent individuals named. In fact, I just had another two trials here in the last year, year and a half in Ogden, Utah, with one of the prominent, prominent ones. He was the former police chief of Omaha and was the police chief of Omaha at the time of all this activity named Bob Wadman, 
and he sued me when the book first came out. He sued me uh, for libel and slander, and I said the same thing then. I say now, hey, these are some of the worst things that anybody could ever say about another human being, which I've written. But there's a rule that you first learn in law school. I know I've been a lawyer for about 50 years now. And uh, one of the first things you learn in law school, truth is an absolute defense to libel or slander. In other words, very simply put, yes, these may be the most horrible things that could ever be said about another person, but if you can absolutely prove they're true, it's not libel or slander. And so one of his first lawsuits against me was in uh, Greensboro, North Carolina, or one of those towns there where this guy, uh, Wadman, had lost his being police chief in Nebraska as this heated up and everything was happening. And uh, I was called out for, I don't know, some bookstore signing and speeches there. Sure enough, he was the police chief, and uh, he tried to deny things there and sue me for slander, and I won that. And then recently, within the last couple years, he started in again, and we had a trial out in Ogden, Utah, I think the name of the place is, but the judge listened to the evidence and testimony and information, and uh, it was pretty blunt, and then he he ruled, he says, well, I know Bob Wadman, and I blah, 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 and I, 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 I sympathize with him, but the senator from Nebraska has, uh, has proved his case, and therefore I have no choice but to dismiss the lawsuit, which, which he did, so... It doesn't end or quit just because uh, just because time has passed or or whatever. He, some of these folks keep at it. Now, Alicia Owen and Paul Benassi, you've mentioned Paul Benassi, are both child abuse victims associated with the Franklin case. Do you represent both of them? I represented Paul Benassi. I represented Alicia Owen for part of her things after, I repeat, after she had been convicted and sentenced to prison, I tried to reopen the case and got it reopened temporarily, but they weren't going to undo it. She was convicted of lying. She was one of the most critically important victims in this thing because her story was reflective of so many other young people's abuse and stories. And she had a child, and it was my claim that the main abuser for this young lady, this young girl, was the police chief of Omaha named Robert Wadman. But now both of these young people at the time, Alicia Owen and Paul Benassi, they were testifying as to these parties and this abuse, right? I mean, they were witnesses before the grand jury. Yeah, see, yeah, they did all this before I... I became involved in this when I was still saying, I don't believe it, you know, kind of. And uh, they testified. They formed a grand jury. I recommended that, that they ought to start to have a real legitimate grand jury start to look into things. And uh, that did start occurring way back then. Then they were charged with lying, making everything up, disparaging and ruining the credibility of just one prominent, prominent, prominent person after another. But Alicia Owen, particularly uh, with respect to the police chief of Omaha. And, of course, 
they testified there to their abuse, and what happened as a result of that, they were then the ones charged with lying. Well, Alicia, they sent to prison, you know. Anyway, it's just it's unbelievable. I'm speaking with attorney and author John DeCamp. Today's show, The Franklin Scandal. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. And when you talk about child abuse, you're not just talking about beatings and sexual abuse, but also torture, murder, snuff films, and satanic rituals, right? Absolutely. The full gamut as far as you can think or imagine, and things even I still can't imagine or believe, but unfortunately I know are true. Yes, I read some of the uh, uh, victims' uh, testimony in your book, and it's, it's hard to even believe. Yeah, well, that's what I thought, but I wrote it. In your book, you break the cover-up, uh, the Franklin cover-up, into three stages. The police, the Douglas County Grand Jury, and the FBI. Just how big was the cover-up? Uh, bigger than I ever could have imagined if I wanted to imagine when I started into this. It led us all over the country, particularly to Washington, D.C., and the politicians there. And uh, you may remember the guy that was at the White House. And Oh, well, yes, I was going to ask you about him. Larry King's partner in Washington, D.C. was Craig Spence. Who was he? He made world attention, as you know. He was in the White House. But this Craig Spence supposedly blew his brains out right before uh, he could be questioned, and and he was headlines in all the papers, and he solved that problem. He or somebody else did supposedly committed suicide. That seems to be a very popular thing, I noted, in this whole investigation, this Franklin investigation, as I call it. When somebody seems to have uh, things closing in on them, whether whether it's a real honest-to-goodness suicide or made to look like a suicide, it does seem to be kind of the traditional uh, step out. (laughs) And maybe it's just a way they send a message to others and say, listen, you don't talk. And uh, if they think you're going to, they... Anyway. Well, who was the FBI protecting? It wasn't uh, just a question of some pedophiles high up in Nebraska, was it? No, I think it went way beyond Nebraska. Certain officials in the FBI, I told you what happened that time I went there when when the head of the Senate Investigating Committee asked me if I would go with him to accompany him to meet with the FBI head that was uh, supposedly looking into this. And we went in there, and <laughs> first thing, first thing he does is start accusing, basically, us and uh, warning and basically trying to scare us. I remember leaving there and telling Senator Schmidt, the the uh, committee head at the time, I said, Senator, uh, you know, I think he ain't going to be with you. He's going to be trying to wipe you out and prove you wrong and discredit you. Discredit, discredit, discredit. That was That was the key whether it's using the media and every other combination there is, make the person who's making the claim look like they're nuts. What is multiple personality disorder? You said that the psychiatrist told you that Paul Benassi 
was a multiple personality. Yeah, that's one thing I've learned a hell of a lot about since since this all started. And uh, yes, it really is something that exists. And yes, I do believe it. And yes, I've learned a lot about it. And there's no question that Paul is probably Paul Benassi, even today. Paul is married and maintains a very private life away from the press and everything. But Paul is married to a wonderful young lady, and uh, they have a couple of children, and uh, children are growing up great. But Paul, even today, he doesn't know it. He doesn't even still realize it. His wife assures me she's contacted me on several occasions, in fact, fairly recently, to reassure me that he doesn't know it. But, yeah, he has multiple. What happens is you literally have within one person another personality, let's say, another whole separate person there. Now, how does that other person come out? Well, there's the key. There are certain triggers, as they call them, or or, uh, actions or words or, or whatever done to pull this personality out and have the other personality disappear. So it's like you have a different person. As I say, I, I'm not a good explainer of it because you're into this whole field of mental health and psychiatry and all that. But, I mean, this kid was actually able, when he could switch a personality, to speak a foreign language that he didn't know two words of when he's in his normal personality or, or be literally a different person. And they particularly use this technique, and I brought this out in the book, and I've learned so much more since then, the CIA, and Colby was the one that told me so much about this and later regretted it, and that's one of the reasons he became involved in trying to correct things, because he was trying to, so to speak, undo some of the things that he later decided might not have been the greatest. Back If you're old enough to remember any discussion of the Korean War, they talked about brainwashing and so on and so forth. You know what I'm talking about now? Yes, of course. Anyway, well, believe it or not, here's Colby's words to me. He was explaining this to me, and he says, we thought that we at the company, meaning the CIA, that we had to learn as much and as fast as we could about this mind control and brainwashing because we believed that absolutely, literally, the Red Chinese and the North Koreans had the ability to brainwash our soldiers and turn them into enemies against us. In other words, take a soldier, totally brainwash him, have a trigger in him that certain word or person could signal him, and he would become an assassin, for example, with the, uh, maybe of the president or something. In fact, he said, we believed, we at the company believed, crazy as this sounds, he said to me, we believed there for a while that they had a technique where an individual could be made to have ESP, extrasensory perception, and read the mind of somebody they're standing there watching, listening to, talking to, actually read what's in their mind. And he said, could you imagine if they had one of their agents standing in front of the president, reading the president's mind and knowing secretly what that president is really planning or thinking? And he says, now it all sounds crazy, I know. He said, Colby did 
He says, but back then, we at the company believed it, and we made sure we started learning everything we could. And he says, yes, there were some horrible improprieties done, but at the time, we believed it was necessary to save this country. And so we also learned that the easiest, most malleable individuals to create multiple personalities in are young people, particularly of the age of uh, 12, 13, 15, 16, you know, that malleable age where you could actually create new personalities in an individual. And they can be created by all kinds of activities. And, uh, of course, a lot of those are, some of them, sexual in nature. But he says, we believed, and that's why the CIA did get involved in that, and I document some of that in my book and bring it out pretty clear. And uh, it's a fact of life, whether we want to believe it or not, whether we want to admit it or not as a country or anything else. It's, it's just an absolute truth, and I know I get condemned for saying this and threatened on occasion. There is the science and ability to create multiple personalities. and uh, Well, yes, that's done primarily through great trauma, isn't it? Yes. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Now, did Colby uh, change his mind about what the Koreans and the Chinese were actually doing? Did he come to think that that they were wrong about what they were doing? Oh, yes. In fact, he said, he went further than that. He said, you know, we believe, for example, they had ESP ability. You could actually take an individual and have them so mind-controlled that they could actually read, you know, another person's mind. He says, yeah, it all sounds crazy today. I can remember his words exactly. Yes, I know it sounds crazy. In fact, he says, it sounds crazy for me to even try to tell you this. He says, but but at, back then, we really believed it or feared it. And uh, he says, now we know it's crazy that you can create multiple personalities. And yes, uh, anyway, and he did acknowledge, basically, the CIA was involved in this. And... Uh, that gets into the whole use of children or young people, and uh, some of it by the CIA and experimental programs and how those could be abused. And, and uh, he said there were all kinds of safeguards, supposedly, such as the parents would have to know about it and at least one parent give permission and on and on and on. But it gets a lot more nasty and messy than that because... That's only half the story. Anyway, go ahead. Well, of course. I mean, have you found evidence of government mind control programs as part of the kidnapping and abuse of children? I think I pretty well made it clear in the second book, maybe some in the first book, that indeed the CIA as one government agency, and maybe in conjunction with some others, did indeed have a learning experience for themselves, trying to learn just what was possible or not possible, and how far uh, you could go on this, and how much could or couldn't be done, and, and uh, any time you have a program like that that's maybe involved with government that's so secret, it gets out of control because it goes beyond the government entities and goes elsewhere, as you well might guess and know, and the CIA, I'm sure did indeed believe and investigate and probably committed factually uh, 
committing the abuse of certain children, trying to learn more and use them. And I, anyway, you know what I'm saying. Well, now you said that uh, William Colby had certain regrets um, about certain things that the government had been involved in. Do you think that William Colby was murdered? And if so, do you have any opinion as to why? Yeah. You're giving me an opportunity to say my opinion without me having to give absolute proof, okay? Yes, that's right. I have no doubt in my mind, not even a thin shadow of a doubt, William Colby was in fact murdered. He, I had been with him, and we'd had a long meeting, oh, less than, I'm going to say less than five or seven days before he was killed. We sat up for three hours up at the, you know, where Union Station is right there, short distance from the Capitol. Anyway, and there's a real nice place we used to go a lot of times to eat there. It's kind of up on balcony in the middle of the place, up on stilts, nice place to eat. We'd go there and talk and go over and share files and so on and so forth. But anyway, it was there he told me so much that one time, that last meeting we had, how he was finally doing what he wanted and what he thought justified his existence in this world, according to him, to use a phrase. And I said, well, what is that? He says, I'm traveling all over the world. I'm meeting with governments of of, of foreign countries. I'm trying to make sure that they don't get involved in some of these things because they think they have to, he says. And uh, this was when he was no longer CIA head. You know, he was fired by Kissinger. We had that big, long meeting, just going over old times and everything. And I think I was there thanking him for going and being filmed on that documentary, you know, and everything. And I stayed at his house some of the time when I came to D.C. I'm speaking with attorney and author John DeCamp. Today's show, The Franklin Scandal. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. How is it that you became good friends with William Colby? Vietnam. I was a young... I had just graduated from law school. And they had something called the draft. Do you remember that? Yes. And uh, I got this letter one day, and they said, Uncle Sammy would like to invite you to join him. And I thought, well, I really don't want to do that. I'm, I'm ready to go practice law. And, and uh, I did a little checking, and the message kind of came back to me that, hey, you can go to the jail, the brig, or you can get your butt over here into the Army. So I reported, like I'm supposed to, and I went through basic and all that junk. And then this chap named Richard Nixon had become president. You remember that? He became president. And he said, well, now, if I get elected, we'll get this thing over with. It'll be over shortly. And I thought, well, all I have to do is just kind of buy a little time and stall a little. But the only way... You could stall a little was if you were in special military schools. So I volunteered for a couple of these special ones. Jungle school, airborne school, let's see, jungle, officer school. Went to officer. So when I finished all those, there was only one thing left you could still do that could delay you, 
And that was something called Vietnamese Language School. So I spent, oh, I don't know, three months there, four months, whatever it was, in Washington, D.C., in this real intense Vietnamese language course. Now, then they had something called the Tet Offensive. You've heard of that? Yes. And here's dumb John, who's now a young captain, who runs through the jungle, jumps out of airplanes, speaks Vietnamese. What do you think they did with his young butt? They sent it to a place called Vietnam and write directly to a guy named William E. Colby, who was officially deputy ambassador there and head of uh, some program. And Colby, and I used to defend this all the way, but in my old age now I have second thoughts. He had the idea, rather than bomb entire villages and kill everybody, which there was too much of that going on, you know what I'm talking about? Yes. Bomb and indiscriminate. It would be better to identify carefully and target the leadership and then send teams in that would wipe these folk out. You follow? There might be eight or ten of the leaders in a little village of 500 or 1,000 or whatever but identify who they were, then have a team go in and wipe them out. So that's what it was called, the Phoenix Program, and I had a team. And I had my Vietnamese counterpart, a major, no, Colonel uh, Dot was his name, and I'll tell you a separate story on that because this shocks the hell out of me. Separate story goes like this, and even I get the shivers when I tell this. So Colonel Dot was my key counterpart, they called him, and he helped eight or ten people, and we'd go out and, well, you know what, do people in. But he was the key to identifying who the leaders were on the other side. Anyway, so uh, Colonel Dot and I were the leaders of this team, and and we went out and did that these missions. We'd identify, and then... So here it is. I get through the war... Oh, and I told you I'm the first, last, and only one you get a meter talk to in your life who became a senator without ever setting foot in the United States. I ran the campaign in Vietnam, but that's another story. Anyway, so... Uh, so now you're going out with this colonel, and you have a team of, what did you say, like eight people? Eight people. And I see you're targeting leaders. Yeah, we target the leaders of the other side, and we go into the village or wherever they are gathering, and then what do you say, politely, kill them. You understand? Right, exactly. Better than killing the whole village or whatever. Anyway, um, so here it is years later, the year 1991. I've been a senator and for 16 years, and the war's over, and on and on and on. And remember, I got my little bride out, of Vietnam. Yes. And uh, she wants to go back and visit home, and so she does. And then she starts going back pretty regularly and taking, starting about 1990, 91, taking, oh, half a dozen, dozen kids each year from the local little school where my kids went to school. And they'd go over and visit, and those kids uh, were from Wilbur, Nebraska, the Czech capital of America or the world or something. Anyway, and those little kids that had never been off the farm or whatever, they come back just stutter and excited about all their adventures and how they were treated so good over there, which is true. 
But anyway, meanwhile, unknown to me, unknown to me, my lovely little Vietnamese wife was busy shipping money back over there to build a house. But I didn't know this, see. So when I finally first go back in, uh, when was it? God, it was close to probably the mid-1990s or right in there. When I first go back, I'm landing at the airport and I'm saying, now listen, I want to know where we're going to stay because I want to make sure I have an air-conditioned room. We've got to get a decent hotel. We've got to get a good hotel. I don't care what it costs. She says, you no worry, you no worry. I handle. So we get in a van she has all waiting for us, and we drive down all the way down into the Mekong Delta to this little town she came from called Kanta, Kanto as Americans say, capital of the Mekong Delta down there where most of the war occurred actually in the jungles there, you know. Anyway, and we pull up in front of this place right on the main highway there that crosses Vietnam and uh, looks... I say, well, what are we doing here? Is this the governor's mansion or something? She say, you no worry. You come look. So I say, who who are we meeting here? She say, you come. This your house. I said, what? She said, this your house. I said, okay. And I walk in, and there's this, like, two- or three-star general there. And she introduces him and say, this man who helped me. I'm not sure she understood just how high-ranking he was. I said, what? This man who helped me. This your house? I build for you. And I thought, what the heck? And then I shake his hand, and I said, you know, glad to meet you. And he says, we know all about you. We know all about you. Senator DeCamp, know all about you. I said, oh, my wife tell you? And he laughed. He said, no, no, we know all about you. And so uh, I get thinking, what the heck? Maybe he would know about my old counterpart. And so I said, did you ever know a man named Colonel Dot? He said, yes, yes, yes. General Dot, General Dot, know him. I said, no, he was Colonel. No, nah, you know him, Colonel. He General. I said, oh, well, is he alive? And I, he said, no, no, he died about six months ago. And I said, oh, well, did he die in prison? Because, you know, he would, he would die in prison being the other side, particularly one of the leaders on the opposite side. And he laugh and he say, no, no, no. He commander of Mekong Delta before me. I take his place. And I kind of stuttered and looked at him. And I said, Colonel Dot, Colonel Dot? Not the man. She said, oh, yes. He said, you know him as Colonel. He General Dot. He man I replace. He commander Mekong Delta. And then I looked at him. And I said, well, then that means, that means, and he looks at me and laughs. He said, yes, he our man. He our man, not your man. You understand what I'm saying? He oh, wow. With the double agent the whole time. Oh, God, I felt like a fool because I wasn't the one that picked him. I was, he was assigned to me, you know, as my counterpart. To I just wonder as I go back and think, well, let's see. How many of the wrong people did we probably kill? Hmm. But anyway, it just shows how screwed up that whole crazy war was, but that's another story. Oh, yeah. But anyway, where were we and where did I get off on this tangent? Well, where we left off was you were having your final meeting with William Colby. Anyway, and he was explaining how happy he was because he was finally doing what he felt was, I don't know, whether almost like this was his redemption or something, you know, and, and uh, what, he, what he felt he should be doing. And, and he was traveling all over the world, meeting with different governments and, and just trying to make sure they don't, 
that, that they don't get too involved in believing some of the terrible things that governments can or should do, and, and they should be guardians against their government getting too deeply involved in in uh, some of this sinister activity, you know. He used to tell me everything. We used to have a really wonderful relationship, and that's why he told me to write that book, because that was my that was my life insurance. He said, whether you ever sell a copy, whether you ever sell a single copy, doesn't matter. And I followed that advice, wrote it, never spent a penny, as I say, selling or marketing it at all. It sold well over, over 200,000 copies. Well, with regard to Colby's death, he was found, was he found floating in Chesapeake Bay? Yeah, after he supposedly, they had done everything in the world uh, to find him, and he comes up floating there. But as I recall, his body didn't look like it had been floating for underwater for a couple of days like it was supposed to have been and everything. There are just too many things in that whole thing. I, I am absolutely satisfied he was eliminated. He was definitely killed, in my opinion. Remember, I'm only giving you, quote, my opinion, which is all I guess I'm properly supposed to say. Well, do you have any opinion as to why he might have been killed? Yes. This whole Franklin thing was getting and exploding too big back then. So you think his death could, could have had something to do with Franklin? I believe it as sure as I believe I'm talking to you and I'm holding this phone. I don't have any doubt that that he was done in. However, officially, you know, there's never been any official report on supposedly what it was. No, I didn't. Um, I wasn't thinking that his death had anything to do with Franklin. I think it had a tremendous amount to do. Franklin was just going great guns, and as I say, they knew he had been coming out here in Nebraska, spending time on it, working on it. Uh, I think they decided he was too much of a security risk with his talking and providing information, telling people where to look for this and that, and so on and so forth. 1996, my dear friend and mentor, former Central Intelligence Agency Director William Colby disappeared supposedly while boating on the eastern shore of Maryland. Ten days later, his body was fished out of the water less than a mile from his weekend home. His death was pronounced an accident, probably caused by a heart attack, resulting in his falling into the river and drowning. John DeCamp, thank you very much. Thank you. I've been speaking with John DeCamp. Today's show has been The Franklin Scandal. John DeCamp was a Republican Nebraska state senator for 16 years. He is an attorney and businessman and author of The Franklin Cover-Up, Child Abuse, Satanism, and Murder in Nebraska. DeCamp was a captain in the infantry in the Vietnam War. As a Vietnam veteran with a 30% disability, he has been the attorney and state lobbyist for both the disabled American veterans and the veterans of foreign wars, and a national committeeman for the VFW. He was the initiator and organizer of Operation Baby Lift, which evacuated 2,800 Vietnamese American children who were orphaned in the war in 1975. All the children were subsequently reunited with their families or instantly adopted. A rough edited copy of the documentary Conspiracy of Silence about the Franklin cover-up 
was sent anonymously to Nebraska attorney John DeCamp one year after all the copies were supposedly destroyed. Conspiracy of Silence can be viewed online. John DeCamp may be contacted at DeCampLegal at inebraska.com. That's D-E-C-A-M-P-L-E-G-A-L at I-N-E-B-R-A-S-K-A dot C-O-M. Guns and Butter is produced and edited by Bonnie Faulkner and Yaro Mako. To leave comments or order copies of shows, email us at blfaulkner at yahoo.com. That's B-L-F-A-U-L-K-N-E-R at yahoo.com. Or call 510-848-6767, extension 628. Trying to steal your life.